Let's turn then in our Bibles to the um, letter, epistle to the Hebrews. We're in chapter 8 this morning. Be reading from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. With a view to finishing the chapter today, God willing, we'll see, but I would like to do that. Okay, so beginning at verse 7, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be, would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding faults with his people, he, that is God, says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and I will write on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each his brother or sister say, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will remember again, or I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. Amen. We're dealing with the the institution of the new covenant. The writer here is speaking to the Jews, explaining to them the unnecessary nature of temple worship. Remember they're being bullied. Remember that these people are being intimidated. They're being tempted to go back into a system of religion or simply to blend in. They believe in Jesus, but for the sake of a quiet life, just to blend in. And those who are not blending in, those who take a stand, those who are not compromising with the old system, are being excluded, they're being pushed out. We remember at this time, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, and many others like him were doing a cleansing. There was a a kind of an inquisition going on throughout Israel, where there were certain men whose job, life calling it was, was to go out among the people and to capture or to isolate, to expel as many followers of Jesus as possible. So in this time when the apostle Paul, who was then Saul, is moving around, we see, remember it tells us in the text, in the the book of Acts, that Saul imprisoned many. Remember the stoning of Stephen, it went that far There's real threat here. It's not just a case of people slighting you and saying bad things about you. The fear of what people might think about you. Things are getting serious. There's a seriousness to following Jesus. There is a cost. There is a cross that must be carried. And it's to these people that the writer is speaking. It's not just a theological debate. It's not just a nice sermon that he says on Sunday that's spoken and then forgotten. He's speaking into the lives of people who have serious decisions to make. That will change their lives forever. It might destroy family dynamics. Turning father against son, mother against daughter, child against parent. It's going to break up relationships and again may damage people's lives forever. It may cost them their very life. 
And so to these people he's writing. And they're worried, they're afraid, they're trying to find, or they have been accused of of having an illegitimate system. Jesus wasn't a priest. He wasn't born of the Levitical line of of Aaron's descendants. So how could he be a priest? And the writer of the Hebrews has gone through that and demonstrating that Jesus belongs to a, a higher priesthood, a unique priesthood. That he is uniquely qualified to represent God's people. And that his system is a system that actually makes changes. It actually has a purpose or fulfills a purpose. Because we know in the old system that they were continually doing these things and nothing was ever changing. The blood of Bulls and goats cannot take away the stain or the consequences of sin. God is not satisfied with animal sacrifice. God is not satisfied with ritual behavior. God desires something more than just an outward acknowledgement of righteousness. God desires righteousness that comes from within, that is a heart following him. We remember the the synopsis, the breaking down, the greatest of all commandments. Do you remember that story in the Gospels when a person comes to Jesus, a lawyer, and he says, Rabbi, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus thinks about it. I can just imagine him looking really wise and pondering and he responds to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. I was like, whoa. And then Jesus throws the next bit in just just to, you know, add that little bit of shock. And to love your neighbor as yourself. By doing this, you fulfill all the commandments. To love your neighbor as yourself, that's crazy talk. Because they all they were concerned about is how they looked about God. They didn't care about people around them. Psst, you don't care about them. But the idea of loving, of caring, of putting your life on the line, sacrificial living. Because we understand, we who belong to Agape Church, we understand that your love towards God, this relationship, is reflected in these relationships. You tell me that you love God. But if your relationship to the body of Christ is lacking, to the local congregation, not the invisible church, I love Christians everywhere. I don't have anything to do with them, but I love them. That's nonsense. You must be in relationship. You must be in constant relationship. Your life must be lived out in such a way that you are giving of yourself You love Christ, how? By loving his body here on earth. There must be an activeness. So he's writing to those people. And now he begins to explain the basis, the fulfillment of the promise. He's explaining how the old is passing away and the new has been established. And he's reinforcing in their minds. He's using this prophecy from the Old Testament, from the prophet Jeremiah 31. And he's explaining it to me and I love it he doesn't actually exegete the text he just says look it's obvious here it is right there you can understand what's written it's right there he just presents the evidence to them and says there it is we get the joy of looking at it and being able to pull it apart today I want to focus in on verse 10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the essence of the new covenant that has been given to us. It wasn't made with us. I want you to understand, you're a receiver a participant, but the covenant wasn't made with us. It was made with Israel. It was made with Judah. But more importantly, it was made with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who signed it in his blood, who sealed it, who purchased it. And we are the inheritors. We receive it. It's been given unto us, deposited on our account through grace, through mercy. You didn't deserve it. You weren't a part of it. But it was given unto you. And the covenant is with Christ. He who offered it up and offered himself. And he says here that he will put his laws into their minds and write them upon their hearts. And this is the real difference between the old and the new. That the old was external. You could do something without meaning it. You just did what was required and then you could go off and live a wild life and then come back the next time and do your stuff and then go off and live a wild life. It's very like the Roman Catholic system in that sense. Where you go and you say your Hail Marys or your Ave Marias or do your rosary beads. You go to the priest and you say your confession and he says, oh, I forgive you and splashes some water at you or something and you're cleansed of your sin you're back to reset it to zero and then you go off and sin again and then you go back and you take your ritual and you say, you take your little wafer thing the body of Jesus and you become more sanctified but inwardly you're lusting and desiring after the things of the world the glory of this new covenant is that it is an inward work it is something that has changed the heart of men and women person mankind that we no longer are simply slaves to a system, but we are those whom we can say, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That there is something within us that can that drives us, that we're no longer slaves, that we're free in Him. The Bible says that he, God will put his laws into our hearts. And of course, this is not the ceremonial, or the judicial laws, but the moral law, that we will do what is right. Think of the word I, I did, this is the, the Bible study yesterday, because my whole week has been full up of this. Right now, I, I, I'm working through what does the law apply to the human heart look like? What does a life that is lived according to the law stroke spirit look like? Because we live in a time of lawlessness. We live in a time of antinomianism in the church. Lawlessness. When it is very common that all men do whatever they please. There doesn't seem to be a standard. There doesn't seem to be any restrictions. There doesn't seem to be any requirements from God whatever a man pleases he does whatever a person pleases they do and it's almost as if God has just given us free reign oh do whatever you want but that's not true it can't be true because Jesus says if you love me you will obey my commandments Jesus said to the disciples go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach them to obey the things that I have commanded you Indeed, Jesus says that in the last day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord. But he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The word means you who knew what was required of you, but refused to do it. These people were false believers. How do we know this? Because they knew what Jesus wanted them to do. They knew what was required of them. Yet they refused to do it. And as a result of that, they are to spend eternity in the lake of fire that was designed for the devil and his angels. There is a heart work here. God is the, writes his work upon our hearts. And again, as I said, I've been working through the book 
Keeping the Heart by John Flavel this week. Great little book. I really recommend it. And I've been reminded that God writes his word upon our hearts and then the, the rest of our lives we work hard at living those things out. That we must guard our hearts because that's where the real battle is. No longer are we bound by just doing the outward. I mean, you can come to church, you can come to our meetings, you can come to the midweek meeting, you can be involved in the prayer, whatever else. You can be constant here, take communion, do whatever else that needs to be done. Look like a good little Christian on the outside, but inwardly, secretly, you're somewhere else. You're lusting after somewhere else. If we were to watch you in your private life, if we were to go through your browser history, if we were to go through the browser history of your mind, oh gosh, we would all be in trouble. It would expose you as a hypocrite. And it's that that the writer is speaking to. It's that that the Holy Spirit is speaking to. The necessity for internal righteousness. The laws written upon our hearts means the righteousness of God doing what is right, not right in our own standard. Again, I said this, forgive me, man, in the Bible study yesterday, but it's something that I'm working through. It's going to be in everything I'm doing. God requires that his people do what is right, not a rightness that comes from culture or from the time in which we live. So I, when Sarah and I were coming back from the cinema last night and I was bewailing and that the, the times in which we live, this leftist, this libertarian, wicked generation in which we seem to be, I don't think I'm a part of it, I think I'm too old, but the younger generation that are so liberal, so anti-conservative that somehow in some way that which is good is not required is is that which we thought was evil in my day my day now oh, i'm so old good has become evil evil has become good what is right is all jumbled up and mixed up so we don't even know what's good what's not good we're told that you no know, living a righteous life being being Conservative is wicked. I heard on the Lotus Eaters, the podcast that I follow, and they were talking about an interview that the man called Pierce Morgans did with this other YouTube guy. Pierce Morgan's a very famous journalist. And, um, and Pierce Morgan was trying to make fun of this younger, smaller journalist by saying, uh, you made a comment that, that men don't want to be with a woman who has slept with like 30 partners. And that that uh, that kind of behavior is unacceptable. And the journalist was like, yes, I said that. And it's, but don't you see that's misogyny? That's terrible behavior against women. And the, the journalist was like saying, no, I'm just saying that, that a man would prefer to have a a partner who hasn't been with 30 other partners. And Pierce Morgans went on to mock him and to berate him and to say that such thinking, such expectations was clearly wrong and it was akin to racism. It was sexism. It was absolutely terrible. And the journalist was like, no, it's just like standard conservative. No, this view is held basically all over the world. If you go to any culture anywhere on the planet, that's the basis. People prefer to have a faithful partner rather than an unfaithful partner. And that's the kind of culture that we're living in at this time, where right is wrong. But Christians are to live to a standard of righteousness that is higher than the righteousness of this world, which is not righteousness at all. 
We are to live in such a way. When the world looks upon us, it thinks alien, weird, strange. Again, I said this in the Bible study yesterday, and I apologize, gentlemen. We are, Jesus said, to be like cities on a hill. We don't really get that reference today because we don't really have cities on a hill like a, a, on a raised area. But I use the illustration is when you're on an airplane and you're flying at night and you look out the window and there's a town or a village to your left or to your right and you see the lights amidst the darkness, especially here in Finland, you're flying through over the forests of Finland, the wasteland of Finland. And you see maybe a little road, some lights, and then all of a sudden you see a, uh, a settlement, a town, a village. And it's unmistakable. You can't miss it. It glows. I used the other illustration. of Once I was flying over France to going somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And the pilot said, the sun had gone down. And the pilot said, if you look out your, I think it was this window. What hand is this? Your left hand window in the distance you'll see the lights of Paris. Now, we weren't anywhere near Paris, but because Paris is such a huge city, the lights from the city of Paris illuminate into the darkness. It's like a giant column that goes into the sky because it's such a a huge city and can be seen from the other side of France, as it were. Our righteousness is to be something different. And it is not just to be an outward Yes, nodding of the head, doing what is expected, doing what is what is needed to be done. But rather, it must be coming from the heart. And it must be something that we do for the love of God. Our righteousness is not what you think is right, or what your wife, or your mother, or your father. But it is what God has said what is right. And again, we look at that and we look at the Ten Commandments, the two tables of God's law, that which is towards heaven and that which is towards our fellow man. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is the life verse of our church. It is the verse that signifies who is a Christian and who isn't a Christian. It's what identifies us as living believers and not just dead hypocrites. God has written his law upon our hearts. It is a living thing. We live in such a way that a difference can be seen. And we do so unashamedly. So that when people look at us, they can see that there's a difference. They know right away and then when we open our mouths and we say things, immediately they, they're like, oh, you're one of them. You're one of them. Christian Taliban. That's what they call us, isn't it? Fundamentalists. True believers. Because the law is written in our heart. Now, the word heart is a difficult word to understand. I think words have power. I think words should be used correctly. The Bible, when it talks about the heart, doesn't mean the organ inside your chest, the size of your fist, more or less, depending on how healthy you are. If you're really sick, it's about that size, about the size of two hands. If you're healthy, it's probably a little bit smaller than your hand. All right, apart from that. It doesn't talk about your guts or your liver. It's not talking about your your emotions. You know, when it comes to Valentine's Day, how do you say that? I, I find it hard to say Valentine. Valentine's Day. And all of a sudden, there's pink hearts everywhere, you know? And husbands are supposed to give their wives flowers. Sorry, love. Or cards or chocolates and a pink heart with you. Ooh, I love you. That is not your heart. A pink heart. A romantic thing. That's a confusion of it. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about the the center of will. That which makes decisions. That which drives you. The part of you that, that decides things. The part of you 
that is that N envies. What's that in English? Stubborn. In a good sense, not a bad sense. We often think of stubbornness as a bad thing. Stubbornness is a good thing when used right. But when the Bible says about God shall write his laws upon our hearts, it doesn't mean he tattoos them on our chest, as cool as that would be. No, it doesn't mean that he brands them inside us. It means that their minds are changed, that their inclinations are changed, their hungers, their passions, their desires. Now we do what is right. He puts them in our minds and in our hearts. We always remember that an interview I saw once with John MacArthur and the the interviewed person said, you know, you're, sir, you're of a reasonable age. Do you still struggle with sin in the same sense that you did as a younger man? MacArthur said something, but I always remember that, that his reply, my mind is so restrained by the word of God that when the urge to sin is nudged within me, it is immediately corrected by what the Bible says. Now, I don't think that John MacArthur is sinless uh, or it doesn't make mistakes or anything like this. That's a great principle of how it works. Because God's word has been applied to our minds, we know what the Bible says. Because the, we know what the Bible is. We spent time studying it. We've heard it. We live it. It's before us. It's in our minds and our hearts have been activated, have been renewed, been transformed, changed by God's Spirit. We are now able to live those things out. Beloved, it is a heart work and you are called to this heart work. You are called as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ to ensure that your heart doesn't become dry and crusty, dusty, doesn't become distracted and blind, doesn't begin to seek after other things. You must guard your heart. When I was preparing this, I was reminded of, of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, which parallels greatly Hebrews. And that uh, in chapter 5, when he's talking about freedom, the freedom of the Christian, Paul says this, for the whole, from verse 14 all the way down to, I guess, the bottom. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to one another, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery. That word literally means uh, drug abuse, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Beloved, here 
we see the, the law of God that has been written upon our heart, the righteousness of God being applied in life. That we don't walk in one way, but we live in another. That we don't give in to those categories of sin, but our lives are different. And if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, they're internal things. There are things that come from within yourself. They're not external things. Tithe paying. They're not... I was going to call them sacraments, God help me. The taking the Lord's Supper things. It's not church membership or a church attendance that are fruits of the Spirit. It's not tongue speaking. It's not miracle working. It's not evangelism. But the fruit of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, that which the Holy Spirit produces within you, the fruit, an apple tree produces apples, orange trees produce orange, the Spirit of Christ within a person produces these things. And these things are the basis of the law that is written upon our heart, the essence of the righteousness not necessarily the outworking, but it is from these foundations that the outworking happens. In the men's Bible study, again, we're going through the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus' great manifesto to his people, as Lloyd-Jones calls it. The practical outworking of the Christian life. How we as Christians are to live in this world. But this, the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, all the way down to us today, this, the fruit of the Spirit, is the foundation. It is what the Holy Spirit is producing. This is what he is writing upon our hearts. This is what he is keeping in our minds. This is the truth of it. And this is how we are to walk. We are to guard ourselves from those things, the, the workings of the flesh. You are to stop it, you are to kill it. Indeed, the Bible says that we are to take captive every stray thought. Indeed, the Bible goes even further than that. It says that we are to put to death the things of the flesh. In our earthly nature, there are still remnants of our Sinful nature. Indeed, if you go to Romans chapter 7, Paul clearly says there at the end, uh, verse 21. So I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the, the law of my mind, and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Oh, what a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... With my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. We see that there is this striving, this continual striving in us as human beings. Though we have, we who believe in the Lord, who have been born again, we have the law written, and I keep pointing my chest, I don't know why, here, perhaps. We have the law written upon our hearts. But there must be an outworking of that. We must walk in those ways. We must do these things. There is a sense of duty, a calling to responsibility. Again, I'm going through the, the, um, the Sermon on Mount with the guys. And I am so aware of the commands there. Christ says, when you do this, 
When, when this happens, this is what you must do. There is a, a sense of the command, the king, the commander commanding his troops. There is an expectation that we will follow, that we will walk, live our lives in accordance to these things. And yet we know that there is a part of us still despite of the work of Christ, that would strive against it. And unless we guard our hearts, unless we are taking direct action not to give in, we can falter and fall. Yesterday we were looking at uh, Acts, no, excuse me, Matthew 5, I think it was 7, Teen to 20. And in one of those verses it says, And anyone who breaks these commands and teaches others to do it will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, it is possible to be a believer and not walk in his ways and keep his requirements. It is possible to be a believer and teach error in the kingdom. And in doing so, you condemn yourself to a position of lowliness within the kingdom. Indeed, Jesus says you will be accounted among the least of God's kingdom. So that when you get to heaven, you will not be among the greatest. The next verse is, but he who does these things, lives out and teaches others to he will be considered among the greatest. Beloved, it is possible to, to know God's law, to know what the Bible says, but not to be walking in it. And indeed, through your example or through your direct teaching, encourage others to break the law of God. The law is written upon our hearts and it is in our minds and therefore it is in our duty, it's our duty, our responsibility to live that out. God has given you the ability, cleanse you from your sins, it says in the last verse of Hebrews 5, or Hebrews 8 verse 13 that he has cleansed us of our sin oh, sorry verse 12 for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins the basis of the new covenant but what I would have what's been laid upon my heart is the necessity for us to keep our hearts not to allow the things of this world or the righteousness of this world or the righteousness of our culture to color us. I'm very aware that the Hebrews were being tempted to compromise, to just simply clip their behavior, to, to modify, to keep their mouth silent, to say nothing in order to fit in, in order to, to receive a better life, in order to avoid the heaviness of the cross that they, were, they must carry. But the writer here is encouraging them. He is demonstrating to them the, the reality of it and the necessity of it and the realness of it. And then he makes this comment in verse 13. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the old is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Now we know that that happened in real life. In 70 AD, the Romans invaded Israel once again. Israel went into rebellion and they were like, And there was a war culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, the Romans surrounded the city and they invaded it and eventually they were able to break into the center of the city. There was a great skirmish, massive battle and in the midst of the battle, somehow in some way, there is disputes of how it happened. The temple of Jerusalem was burned down. The Romans then absolutely obliterated the city. They literally pounded it down to dust, salted it, they crucified so many people that there wasn't a tree left in all the land. They, they literally, there was like a, a forest of crucified people. 
this letter points out that the old system with its temple worship and its necessity and its Levitical standards is about to pass away. That it's of no help and no benefit to the believer. There's no hope in it. And giving adherence to it. Conceding to it. Giving in for the benefits of a better life is unnecessary. Because in due time, that system will pass away. Endure surrendering to it for the sake of a better life is unnecessary. And you will be regarded in the kingdom of heaven as being among the least in the kingdom of heaven because of your compromise. Because you did not obey the commandment and you encouraged others for your own sake to not obey the commandment. And it's not always something that we do, that we we actively break commandment, but perhaps it's a sin of omission, something that we don't do. It's often more important than things that we do. We don't speak when we're supposed to speak. We don't stand up and be counted for the sake of Christ. We remain invisible rather than being the voice of reason in a world of madness. Beloved, the Law has been written upon your heart, upon your mind. And you have been given the responsibility to keep those things, to keep it sharp, to feed it, to train it. Don't think your acts of submission, cowardness, cowardness perhaps, will go unnoticed. Don't think that no one will notice. If I just say nothing, no one will care. Christ knows. Christ sees. Christ remembers. This world in which we live, this system, this culture, this time in which we live is a temporary thing. I am old-ish. I'm 48 years old. Can't believe that. My life has gone and it's still, to me, I, I think to myself as 17, 18, then I look in the mirror and go, no, not anymore. The hair is gone, the waist is gone. I look more like Santa Claus than Brad Pitt, you know, or Elvis. Time passes so quickly. I remember a time when the world was still conservative, when conservative values and Christian values were the values of the, the world in which we live. When I came to Finland, Finland was a very conservative country. The Lutheran church was still a very conservative church. The Pentecostals here were very conservative. They held to a fundamental Christian line. Things we can disagree on, but for the morals, the basics... And yet today, 22 years later, the world is upside down. That which is evil is good. That which is good is evil. And every man does what is right in their own eyes. We do it, not we personally, but we in our culture do it because it's easier to do so. Easier not to preach it about homosexuality or marriage or divorce. Well, people get offended. What happens if people get offended? Somebody reports me to the government and I get arrested. Hallelujah, praise God, amen. You're in good company. Think of John the Baptist. I don't want to live my life like John the Baptist. This life is a small, temporary thing. You live a few years and then you're gone. But after this life is eternity. And that which we do in this life has consequences for the life that is to come. Beloved, the law has been written upon your hearts and is in your minds. It is your responsibility and duty to keep your heart, keep it by a renewal, renewing it through the word, by living it out fearlessly in my cost. You, but you must, for the sake of your own soul, for the glory of Christ, for the health of his kingdom. 
again, the writer here, he encourages his readers or listeners by pointing out that the old is obsolete. The system of rituals and ceremonies of <sighs> passed down faith because my dad was a Christian, I'm a Christian. Because my grandfather was a Christian, I'm a Christian. That doesn't happen anymore. The idea of merit and of winning grace doesn't exist anymore. God is not interested so much on the outward but on the inward. You and I must keep our inward. And the inward then will be seen on the outward. For whatever a man is in his heart, so he is, the Bible says. Please don't say to me, you can't see my heart, Kyle. I can actually. I can actually see your heart. I can actually see what's important to you and what you actually think. It will be exhibited by your behavior, by your interactions, by your faithfulness or faithlessness. For whatever a man desires, he seeks. Whatever a man sows, he shall reap, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6. If he sows to the flesh of the flesh, he shall reap a harvest of destruction. But if he sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit he shall reap everlasting life. Beloved, keep your heart. Invest in it, refresh it, renew it by the Word. And seek Him for the courage. Delivered out. We have been renewed and hallelujah, praise God. We are, we are free from a system of law keeping. But in the same sense, now we must be those who live out the law. Not bound by it. Not tied up. Oh, I must do this otherwise I'm in danger. No, we are among those who say, oh, oh hallelujah, praise God. No, I love doing what is right. I enjoy it. Not just legally driving the speed limit or whatever else you want to do, paying your taxes, whatever those kind of things need to be done. I'm not talking about judicial law, but in that we do what is right according to the word of God, even if it was declared illegal by the state. Because the state doesn't always do what is right. You think of abortion. You think of the legalization of divorce. You think of all those things that the world considers right. That we know that are wrong, that are harmful. Not that God is a bad person who, doesn't, who just wants to stop on everybody's toes and ruin everybody's party. God made these laws in order that we might be benefited and to protect us from that which is not beneficial. God's laws are to protect you and to provide for you benefit and blessing. Do not steal. Why? Because you're taking something from someone else by some means. And you'll get in trouble when it's discovered. The person will be angry with you. In the old days, they could have killed you. In this world, you'll go to jail and cause shame for your family and your friends. Do not commit adultery. Why? Because it's harmful for your relationships. It's terrible for your health. It causes disaster and devastation. I've worked with men who have left their wives for other women. And it takes years, if not ever, to repair the relationships and the devastation. Just on an earthly level. Children who have never forgiven their parents. Wives who burn with shame and hatred towards their husband. Husbands who have no men who have taken their own lives because they haven't been able to deal with the shame of their wife leaving them for another man. The laws of God are to protect us and to benefit us, to bless us and to keep us safe. That is why our righteousness shines in this world. Why we are considered different and weird. Beloved, this is the benefits and the blessings of the new covenant that have been written upon our hearts. 
and our inner minds. Let's not grow weary. Let's not grow afraid. Let's not put the light that God has given us under a basket or a, a hink. But let's stand up and be who we are in Christ. Let's remember that the fruits of the Spirit, it's not heavy and burdensome. It's not tiresome and a trial. It should be light, health, and peace. Jesus said, all you who are tired and weary and heavy burden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, a big heavy thing, but it is light and easy to carry. The Christian life should be a life of benefit and blessing. But so often it becomes tiresome and heavy because we don't keep our heart. We don't protect our minds. We allow the influence of the world to burden us and bully us, to distract us, to tempt us. And all of a sudden we have so much scrap, so much other things that we're no longer living in the blessing of his word. We're so concerned about what that person's doing or what this person's doing that our minds and our hearts have been led astray. This world is coming to an end. Our world is coming to an end. I will one day pass from this life into the next. And I would want the life that I live in the next to be known with honor and not with dishonor. Oh Lord, be gracious to me. Beloved, are you keeping your heart? Are you keeping your heart? Can you honestly say that the law of God not in a restricting way, not in a burdensome way, but in a way that is a blessing and a benefit to you, is free and easy within you? Is your mind full of light? Or is that light beginning to dim? Can you honestly say that your life is being lived as if you are a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, shining bright? Or have you been distracted? Have you been tempted? Have you been intimidated into not keeping the commands? And in doing so, encouraging others to just dim that light a wee bit. Just here, here. You have, you have a basket to cover your light. Well, take mine. It's not the Bible, but it is wisdom. There's no sense. It only takes one apple to ruin a whole barrel. One bad apple to ruin a whole barrel of apples. If you have an apple tree and you know that you have a rotten apple in it, or potatoes, there's another great example. If you have a rotten potato in a bag, you can smell it. But not only does it, it just, it just permeates through the entire bag and all the, it's all slimy and disgusting. You put your hand in it and it's like, whoa! Sadly, Christians, we can be like that too. If we're not keeping our heart, we're not walking in his ways, not keeping his requirements, if we're not renewing, refreshing our minds, we can be an influence for evil in the congregation. Ask you again, are you keeping your heart? Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And are you loving your neighbor your brother and sister here in church, not just a stranger in the street, not just someone that you know at work, not just whatever club you may be a part of, but your brother and sister here, those for whom Christ died, are you loving them as you're loving yourself? It's challenging, isn't it? Beloved, the good news is that we don't have to live under the condemnation because, oh, I, I sure I know. If you're like me, you always judge yourself much harsher than you really are. I'm one of these terrible people that I think, you know, I see my sin through a magnifying glass. Oh, ho, ho, ho. 
The good news is that God has done a work and has transformed us and changed. Verse 12 from Hebrews again. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Our sins have been forgiven and our wrongdoings will be not remembered. We can ask for forgiveness, confess, repent, restore, reconcile, turn things around. Your life doesn't have to be the way it has been. You can start anew, afresh, be renewed and revived. Seek the Lord while he may be found. For today is the day of salvation. We live in a time of new covenant righteousness, of hard work. The true other thing is true as well, that nothing that we can do in ourselves can ever save us. No matter how good we are, no matter how righteous we are, no matter how worthy we are, we'll never be righteous or good or worthy enough. Our sins have separated us from the glory of God. Our sins and the sins of our ancestors or predecessors, sorry it is, isn't it? All the way back to Adam. You cannot save yourself by doing religious things. God's not interested in religious things. He's interested in hearts. He's interested in the innermost of a man, of real reality, of truthfulness, of belief. It says in the Gospel of John that this is the real work that God requires to believe in his only begotten Son, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we are saved. Believe in him. Your sins have separated you from God. Your unrighteous acts. But faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, he has made a way. He has taken upon himself the punishment for every wrongdoing, for every sin. And he has paid the price. And for all those who believe in him and confess him as Lord, there is new life. Beloved, let us remember that we are new covenant believers. That we are to keep our hearts, to guard them, to watch over them, to renew them, to refresh them through the word, to live out our lives, not to be just like the world in its rule keeping, in its ritual and in its ceremony, in its endeavor to prove that it's good enough. We have been set free from that. We can love in freedom. Let's remember that the greatest of all the commandments, that which sums up all the commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, with all our being. Not just a fraction, not just the Sundays or Mondays or whatever days. Every moment of every day. Let's remember that we are where we are because of what Christ has done for us and not for what we have done for ourselves. Amen. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask, O oh God, that you would help us. Lord, we're very conscious of the fact that we are wholly and solely dependent upon you. The Lord, your word says that you have written your laws upon our heart. And the Lord, they are in our minds. We who are believers have been transformed and changed. And yet, Lord, we are, we are very conscious of the fact that we live in a time that discourages righteousness, that discourages us from living our lives unto your glory. Lord, that we are encouraged to stay silent, to be invisible, to be unseen and unheard. Lord, it discourages us from doing the right thing. 
And we pray, O oh God, that you would guard us from that. That, Lord, we would not be among those who compromise. That, Lord, we would not be among those who think that they can get away with it. That it has of no consequence to us in our lives. No one sees and no one cares. But, Lord, we know that you know and you care. Help us, O oh God, to repent of these things. Lord, to acknowledge them, to confess them, to repent of them. To live to the standard of your word that we might bring glory to your name. Lord, also for those who do not know you. Lord, those who have no thought of you. We pray, that, O oh God, that they might see that there is no human means to salvation. That life in itself is short and brief. And that their sin, Lord, is serious. Oh God, I pray that you would open up their minds and allow them to see that the, the only one who is able to transform them and change them and to accomplish a peace with you, to establish for them eternal life and the life that is to come is the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, draw them unto yourself. Lord, I pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.